Today we turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 5 to 11, welcoming those who are visiting as we are going in this new year through what Derek Thomas calls the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 8. You'll notice on pages 4 and 5 an outline and also an extended summary of some of these very peculiar and important things related to the flesh and the spirit on page 5. Hear now the word of God. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness." If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it today to us by his Holy Spirit. Kids, are you ready to shout something out? Who made you? God made you. Good. What else did God make? He made all things. Amen. Why did God make you in all things? For his own glory. And how can you glorify God? By loving him and doing what he commands. I did not talk to them beforehand. That, that is the children's catechism. And what we have in there is a summary of what Paul is telling us right here. Dear Christian Emmaus family, what are you living for? To glorify God, to enjoy him forever is the answer. But what does that look like? Well, it arises out of Scripture, as one theologian says. The drama of salvation from creation to consummation with Christ as the Alpha and the Omega, beginning and the end. Out of that plan of salvation, we are taught certain things about who God is, doctrine. And what it means that we're created in his image, that we're fallen, that by grace through faith we are redeemed in Christ and one day we'll be glorified. The drama and doctrine leads to doxology, to a life of praising and worshiping the Lord and living as disciples who are in Christ. That's Paul's theme here. He says there are only two ways to live and There are only two different groups of people. What are you living for? First, the life of unbelievers in Adam. When the New Testament talks about the last days, John Fesco says, the breaking in of the new creation, those last days began with the first coming of Christ. That's the chart on page five. 
Jesus has inaugurated a new creation through the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. Paul is talking here about the flesh and the spirit. He's not saying, okay, your body is bad, you got to get out of it. The spirit is good, you got to escape the prison of the body. That's not at all what Paul says. That's Platonism. Paul is contrasting two overlapping periods of time in this passage. He did that in Galatians 1, the reading today. The flesh, sin, this present age. The spirit, holiness, the age to come. We live in the overlap. That's why there's a tension in the already and the not yet. But this matters practically and pastorally because one of the biggest weaknesses of the church, Jim Boyce said this 30 years ago, David Strain picks up on it right now, is out of a misunderstanding of this reality. Maybe you've heard this. The mistaken idea that there are three classes of people. That there are non-Christians, there are Christians, and then there are Christians who are living in an unsaved manner. Have you heard that before? It's a bit old, but it still can kind of rear its ugly head. The idea of a carnal Christian. The New Testament doesn't teach such a thing. But it's dangerous because, as one man says, hell will be filled with people who think, I'm Christian enough, thank you very much. They thought that they could kind of have this middle ground between rejecting Christ and living in utter reliance on him and for his glory. Give me enough Jesus to save me from hell and get me to heaven, but I don't want that to actually impact my life, my loves, my priorities, my motivations. This may be, this man says, the deadliest and most common and effective lie Satan has ever spread in the church. It may be the greatest hindrance to the advance of the gospel, he says. Paul says there are two categories. The first Adam, flesh, sin, law, condemnation, death. The last Adam, spirit, righteousness, grace, justification, and life. And those who are in Adam, in the flesh, live with their minds, he says, set on the things of the flesh. Flesh means corruption, fallenness, death, and the sin that Adam committed spread to all men because in Adam's fall sinned we all. And death comes through sin. Sin is a cancer. It's impacted every part of us. There's no untainted, righteous part of us in and of ourselves. It's gone to the core, the heart. It doesn't mean that everyone commits every possible sin. It doesn't mean that we don't understand there are civic acts of righteousness that unbelievers do. And there's beauty and art and music that we thank God for. And we look at every person as one made in God's image. That's important. Whether they're a Christian or not, they're made in the image of God. But what Paul is saying here is that the fall is so serious, it affects our bodies. That's why we get sick. That's why they break down. That's why we die. It affects our will. We're in bondage to sin and not free to choose spiritual good in Adam. Our minds, our thinking, the noetic effects of sin, that's a fancy word, meaning 
our presuppositions, perceptions, how we interpret things. Those who deny the living God of the Bible are blind to the fact that every object in the universe and every event in history and every creature and action depends on God and bears witness to God. Paul says the flesh is the idea of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, exchanging the truth for a lie, the wisdom of the world, worshiping the things of the world. By mind here, setting our mind, he means not just intellect, but our heart, our affections, what we love, what we choose. The mind is all about me by nature, isn't it? Do you remember the story of the Greek mythology talking about narcissists? Have you heard of this particular story, who was a hunter, who was known for his beauty. He rejected all romantic advances. He fell in love with his own reflection in a mirror, in a pool of water. He stared at it for the remainder of his life, kids, just looking at himself. So maybe you've heard of narcissism, right? A fixation upon oneself turned in on ourselves. That's how we are by nature. Galatians 5 notes, here's what these bad fruits of the flesh look like. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. It's awful. By nature, we live for our idols. By nature, we are dissatisfied and restless. I can't get no satisfaction, the stone said, right? Restlessness is the heart of idolatry and sin. Adam and Eve didn't rest in God. They wanted something more. Israel, after 40 days of waiting for Moses, no way, we're not waiting anymore. They make golden calves. Moses got restless and struck the rock. Saul lost his kingdom, his life, because he couldn't wait seven days for Samuel to come to offer the sacrifice. That's our heart by nature, restless, covetous, like a tossing sea. The water's churning everything up, and there's mud and muck and mire, Isaiah 57. Our anger, our frustration, our unbelief Colin Smith says, is a hellish sin. Our discontentment comes from hell. People in hell are always angry, never at peace, frustrated, gnashing of teeth. Our discontent brings a taste of hell into life now. When discontent gets a grip in our lives, we know this, It brings this taste of death, this sadness, this darkness, not a a, a lamenting sadness, but a selfish, turned in on myself, and it spills out to everyone around me. And it's a cancer that spreads sin in all of its forms is deadly poison. Paul says the mind that's set on the flesh, verse 6, is death spiritual death. Those who are 
unresponsive to Christ. Those who think that the things that a Christian loves mean nothing to them are like a dead corpse, Paul is saying. You go to the graveyard, you try to speak to it, and it doesn't move. That's the picture of spiritual death. Here's an example. 1700s, William Wilberforce, raised up by God to lead to the abolition of the slave trade in Great Britain. He brings William Pitt, the prime minister, to church. He's eager afterwards to hear what Pitt thinks as the gospel is preached. Pitt says, you know, I do not have the slightest idea what that man was talking about. Spiritual death. The mindset on the flesh is death. It's hostile to God. Going back to Genesis 3, think of the seed of the serpent seen in Cain and Pharaoh and Saul and Herod. A hostility visible whenever anyone demands adoration or persecutes Christians. It's seen in ideologies that hate Christianity in workplaces filled with blasphemy, and it's fueled by the hostility of Satan. Many non-Christians think, well, I'm not hostile to God. And why do they think that? Because they've created a God after their own imagination. But when we turn to the God of the Bible, Paul says, the hostility is seen how? Not hidden, but outward, verse 7, in hostility to God's law. It doesn't submit to God's law. One example in our day is fear. When someone doesn't fear God, they fear everyone and everything else. Rebellion against God's law, where sin is celebrated, where evil is called good and good is called evil. The rise of the modern self a culture of death, abortion. We see it everywhere around us. Romans 1, God has given them up. The judgment of God is present already as you see this around us. The flesh and the spirit are two opposites. There's no intersection. Paul says those in the flesh cannot submit to God's law. They don't please God. They can't do anything to save themselves. That's the picture here. Complete death. Not Princess Bride, somewhat dead, where you are kind of not totally dead, but dead like a corpse. And now if you're here today and your heart is set on some of these things Paul's talking about and you're thinking, I'm going to try to live between Christ and Adam, or you're here today and openly you say, I'm not a Christian, If you remain in that state, there is only death in sin here and death under the wrath and curse of God forever hereafter. So what should you do? You can't make yourself alive? You should repent and believe the gospel. One pastor says, cry out to mercy. When you hear the voice of Christ in the gospel, it's the spirit that is giving you ears to hear and bringing you and drawing you to God, like Lazarus being drawn out of the tomb by Christ's word. Come to Christ. Unbeliever, cast yourself on him. You don't have to have the right words. You don't have to clean yourself up. 
trust in his obedience for you, his blood shed for you, his resurrection for you, come to him. Second, what are you living for as a Christian? Paul speaks now of a second group. And he uses the word spirit. You notice that all over this passage. The spirit. The spirit of God. The spirit of Christ. The spirit that lives in you. This is the Holy Spirit. By nature, we are bound to Satan. But by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, by the spirit applied to us so that Christ is no longer outside of us, but we are in him, we're delivered from this present evil age. We experience now the first foretaste of the new creation. And one day we will be spiritually and physically raised from the dead. But we're in the overlap right now. There's a tension. That's why you can hear of sins of the flesh, like we just heard of, covetousness, and say, yeah, I struggle with that. That's why we can hear of things that Yes, once characterized us in Adam, but still cling to us because we're not yet in glory. We're awaiting the consummation, but we're empowered by the Spirit now. Paul says to set the mind on the Spirit is life. Jesus says, if you believe in me, you have eternal life. Not just a far-off hope, but a present reality. You have been born from above, You might say, well, I don't know the time. Packer says this, the mark of a Christian is not having a conversion experience. It is present convertedness. You may have been regenerate at the level of the subconscious without knowing John the Baptist in his mother's womb. But the question is, do you know Christ now? To set the mind and the spirit is life. New life in Christ. It is peace. Those who trust in Christ by faith have peace with God. Justified. The war is over. The armistice has been signed in the blood of our Savior. No condemnation. You have peace with God. And now you have that Philippians 4. Peace of God. That surpasses all understanding in your heart by the Spirit. You are simultaneously justified yet sinful. Remember that, Christian. Don't go away thinking, well, I'm fighting sin. That means I'm not a Christian. Pastor Ray Ortland says, give me three square meals a day, eight hours of sleep a night, and I can be good on my own for perhaps as much as five minutes at a time. But it's the goodness of the flesh. It just conceals the indwelling sin still within me. It's superficial. It's self-reliant. It's external. The heart is untouched. But, Paul says, in Christ, you have a different sort of peace because the Spirit is living in you. Not peace from a long night of sleep, which is a great thing, but something different. It guards your heart and mind. It doesn't deny the pain and sorrow of life. It helps you, as a military picture, guarding your mind when you're tempted to unbelief and fear and distrust and anxiety, and it guards you. 
in our sinful nature, we are so impatient, so restless. Our attention span, people say, might be like eight seconds. I was at a hockey game the other night, looking over someone's shoulder. I shouldn't have done that. Just watching them scroll nonstop. And I realized, you know what? I, I can be tempted to do that. Just what, what are you looking for? Well, just looking for a headline, looking for some. There's nothing evil about a phone or scrolling or technology. But our hearts are craving something. And what we do is we look everywhere else but Christ. But we find rest only in Jesus. Peace comes from knowing that we are in the hands of a Savior who loves us. Satisfaction comes knowing that in Jesus you have all you need. Contentment and trust begins when you know that he is faithful. You'll never be put to shame. You don't need to panic. We lift our eyes to Jesus. By his spirit, he brings us from anger to peace, from frustration to satisfaction, from anxiety to trust, so that the center and the gravity of our life lies somewhere that the world has no knowledge of. What is the great interest of your life? We have all sorts of interests, things we get excited about, things that we thank God for, gifts he gives. Yes, we thank God for food and family and health and exercise and sports and art and music. But the great interest of our life, what we desire for our kids more than anything, is not just prosperity and success, but that they will know Christ that they will never know a day when they don't trust him and worship him and honor him and obey him. That's what Paul's talking of here. The mind of the spirit. Isn't that an interesting phrase? What is on the mind of the Holy Spirit, Derek Thomas asks? Have you ever thought of that? That's what should be on our mind as those indwelt by the spirit. The Holy Spirit, Thomas says, who lives in the Christian has one desire. What is that? To glorify and honor Jesus. For the Christian, the Spirit renovates our heart, giving you new loves, new priorities, new desires, a new pleasure to live according to God's law. Not do this and live, but because you live in Christ, do this. We want to please Christ now more than anything. The things of the Spirit, Paul speaks of. The fruit of the Spirit. Now is in contrast to the work of the flesh. Our new mindset, our new way of perceiving things, impacts the way we think. We begin to think God's thoughts after him. We begin to remember God himself is one true triune God who created me for fellowship with him. He didn't create the world to be filled with sin. He created a perfect world, but sin has entered it. And death has come, and there is sorrow and suffering, but God has a plan to renew all things. Thinking that, day by day, everything will be okay, Christian. You're in Christ. How about this? John Owen asked this question many times many hundreds of years ago, what is it that your mind defaults to when it's not thinking about anything in particular? Talking about the mindset, thinking of the things of the Spirit. 
If our mind defaults to where the spirit would default, that is the degree to which we are growing in a spiritual mindset. Thinking about God and the word of God and our minds being fixed on Jesus. Taking our thoughts captive, 2 Corinthians 10, to Christ. So spirit-wrought obedience for the Christian is free and cheerful. It's devout and fervent. It's extensive and sincere. Constant and continuing in affliction. Not yet perfect, but coming out of a heart that loves the Lord, that hates sin more and more. That's growing in maturity in Christ. A pattern. Whereas once when heat and trials came, we would default here. Now we're recognizing, yeah, those are thorns. There's still sin here. I still go there, but now I'm sooner repenting than before. There are people in my life that are helping me see my sin, but more than that, to see Jesus. Change is happening by the gospel. It's gradual. I'm not concentrating on myself so much. Even as we serve the Lord, we're not concentrating on me. We're concentrating on where the Spirit's at work around us, around the world. I listened to a lecture yesterday about the gospel in Korea. The gospel at one point in North Korea, there was a really good seminary in Pyongyang, and, and the gospel is still there in North Korea, and there are still churches there, and there are missionaries being sent from everywhere to everywhere, a global mindset on the work of God in his church by his gospel for his glory. We see how the Spirit works through word and sacrament. We begin to love the church. We begin to love each other. That as the shepherd calls us to him, we come nearer to each other. We're not only bound together in Christ, we're bound to each other. We worship together. We're not alone here. Corporate. We grow in love over the long haul, in forgiveness. By all this, people will know you are my disciples, Jesus says, if you have love for one another. We see each other as our spiritual family. as gifts that God has given to us to bear burdens and blessings. We see the elders and deacons as a wonderful gift of God to care for our soul. It impacts how we think. That's what Paul is saying. Philippians, we think about what is true. God is true. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the fullest embodiment of grace and truth. His gospel is truth. His word is truth. We think about that. And then we meditate on what is not only true, but honorable. We pray, God, help me to think of honorable things this week. The pollution of sin is there, yes, but I want to worship you. I want to delight in you. Things that are pure. I'm bombarded with the crude and my heart stirs it up and takes it. Help me set my mind on things that are righteous and holy and pure. One man said, impurity of mind may be the single most crippling sin in the church and the home today. God, purify my thoughts. 
Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Help me to think on things that are lovely. Whatever is lovely, Philippians, is never sinful. It's pragmatism and legalism and greed that cannot comprehend true beauty or loveliness. Help me think on what is commendable, what is excellent. Father, fill my mind with this as you are building up, verse 9, my assurance in the gospel. Paul says, I want you to be assured of who you are in Christ. I don't want you to walk around with the petal of the flowers and saying, he loves me, he loves me not. Am I in? Am I out? Is this day good? Is it bad? Where am I? Paul says, not, the idea here is not if, really, verse 9. If the Spirit dwells in you. No, he's saying, in fact, it does. The Spirit is in you. It's sure. Paul knows these beloved people in Rome the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God. Interestingly here, as Ligon Duncan says, this is a whole doctrine of the Trinity in verses 9 to 11. You see that? The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The church has spoken of that as the filioqua, meaning and the Son. Why is that important? Because the Son is divine, the Son is eternal, the Son is not subordinate to or less than the Father. We worship one God in three persons. And in a culture where people don't know who they are, Christians are those in Christ and indwelt by the third person of the Trinity. Isn't that remarkable? If you are in Christ today, the Holy Spirit has made a home in your heart. God is not just close to us, Thomas says. He comes to inhabit you. You are God's temple. So the transformation in your life to be more like Christ is not try harder. It's not beat yourself up, but the Spirit is working change in you, transforming you. Even, as Paul says, verse 10, your body is a body of death. You hear that? The moment we are born and take our first breath, we begin to die. We're all one year closer in 2023 to our death. You say, that's morbid. Or to Christ's return. Our body breaks down. We struggle there. The body is dying. Dear friends, are you ready to die? Here's a story told of a man who is a professor of a university. He's speaking to a young man who wants to enter law school. The professor says to him, when you finish your studies, then what do you want to do? He said, well, I'll take my degree. And then, said the professor, then I will have a number of difficult cases. I'll get a great reputation through my eloquence and wit. And then? Then I will be promoted to a high office and become rich. And then? Then I will live comfortably and honorably in wealth and respect and retire and have a happy old age. And then? And then, said the youth. And then? I will die. The old professor said, And then? 
The student made no answer. He cast down his head. The last and then had pierced his heart like a sword. Are you ready to die? Are you trusting Christ? Are you a Christian? Are your sins forgiven? Do you know what will happen five seconds after you die? Do you know where you will be? Are you prepared to meet with the Lord? Those who live according to the flesh go about their days thoughtless about their death. Careless. The body is dying, Paul says, but the spirit is life. Because of what? Righteousness. Because there has been a last Adam who has come, who obeyed, Jesus the righteous one. Because of his work, his death, his resurrection, you are now in union with him, Christian. When he died, you died. When he rose, you rose. You were on his mind when he was on that cross 2,000 years ago. You were loved and known by the Father before the world existed, Ephesians 1. You are not forgotten by God. You are cherished by God. You are his treasured possession. And he wants your assurance to be built up here. He asks you in verse 11, who raised Christ from the dead? The Spirit did. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. If you're a Christian, the Spirit that lives in you. Who is helping you day by day? Fight against sin and giving you new desires for Christ. The Spirit is. Who will raise you from the dead one day? The same Spirit that raised Christ. He wants the grammar of the gospel to settle deep in your heart. That this body that's getting old, that I have to go to doctors for, that doesn't work well, it'll be raised. God loves your body. That not only your soul, but your body in the new heaven and the new earth. And your body matters now to God. You glorify God in your body and your soul. Ray Ortland wrote a book on Romans 8. And he tells of an oncologist who is an elder in the church who has a plaque on his wall saying, what cancer cannot do. Cancer is so limited, it cannot cripple love, it cannot shatter hope, it cannot corrode faith, it cannot destroy peace, it cannot kill friendship, it cannot suppress memories, it cannot silence courage, it cannot invade the soul, it cannot steal eternal life, it cannot conquer the spirit, the spirit of the living God. That's your inheritance. God resides in you and will forever. And so Emmaus wrote, what are we living for? Paul says not only for the glory of God, but specifically, he wants to present every member mature in Christ. Romans 8 in this new year will help us there. Grounded in the gospel, growing in maturity in Jesus. How does this work? If our spouse was asked, how is this husband or wife growing in grace? Where's the evidence of the Spirit there? What would we say? Teenagers, what would we say? Kids, what would you say of mom and dad? Sometimes parents expect a level of obedience and holiness in their kids that they themselves have no interest in. 
How real has God been this week to you? Is the Bible living? Are you seeing the grace of the gospel, the assurance of Christ for you? Are you finding God glorious? Are you struggling? Are you weary? Of what sin has the Spirit led you to repent of this week, this month, this last year? Have you asked God, like we did in the prayer meeting, to send God to you? Have you prayed, God, help my marriage to reflect your presence? I need you, God. I'm going home. The day is busy. I'm flustered. The kids are chaotic. We need you, God, as a home. We need Christ. Have we prayed that on our way to church? God, help me. We're late. Help me by your spirit to hear the word, to believe, to worship, to trust you. On your way home after church, God, may this word and the seed of it not be ripped away by birds pecking away at the seed on the path. May it take deep root in my heart. Emmaus Road, what are you living for? Do you know and believe, brothers and sisters, that not just the Father loves you, not just the Son, but the Holy Spirit loves you too? Paul said, I'm living that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection, that I might share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection for the dead. It's hard, Paul says. The struggle is there. Press on. Brother and sister, keep on keeping on, forgetting what lies behind, looking forward to what lies ahead. Toward what goal? The goal of the prize, of the upward call of God for you, dear one, in Christ. Amen. Let's stand to sing.